Coming up, I break down the return of the Warriors dynasty and the timeline from 2009 until today and how this dynasty came about. I also talked about the Celtics and the Heat, of course, my Rangers, and of course, the Battle of Alberta that we've seen in the NHL playoffs, and some Yankee talk also because that team continues to fight back and be resilient and be one of the more fun Yankee teams we've seen in recent memory. All that and more coming up next. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back. Episode 67. We have a great show. It's Memorial Day weekend. It's Friday. Today started off pretty gloomy outside, but now it's sunny. And yet I'm sitting inside recording a podcast because we got a lot to discuss. And if I don't do it, who will? Right. So I'm in here recording this uh, after last night. I think the biggest story is the Golden State Warriors. And they're going back to another finals. And if people don't realize what an incredible story that is and just how amazing that is, um, I do want to put that in perspective for people a little bit. Uh, because I think it's one of the great accomplishments that we've seen in sports recently. When you look at it, it's six finals in eight seasons. That sounds like, okay, that's a long lasting dynasty but when you look at the rise and really what people looked at as the fall of the dynasty the last two years that they didn't make it and you could even go back to the year before that with all the injuries against toronto and that finals it feels like it's been longer than two years since they've been in the finals it feels like this team was dead and done and now all of a sudden they're back again and really credit to so many people in the warriors system and the front office and the players themselves and everyone involved in that organization it really is as big of an accomplishment uh, and people are overstating it today. People are going to get on the air and talk about, Oh, Steph Curry's the greatest all time. I saw Colin Coward said he's the most influential player of all time. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I'm not going to talk about that. Like I said, I don't really do sports debates that way. I kind of more just want to talk about the things I want to talk about and the things that I find to be uh, interesting and impressive. And what's impressive about this is what they've been able to uh, sustain for such a long period of time, but even more so the fact that it seemed like it was over and yet they come back. Uh, And Draymond said it best last night. He said, when Clay, Steph, and I are all healthy, we've still proven that no one can beat us. And that's true. Steve Kerr with this team is now 21 and two in playoff series. They've won 21 of the 23 possible playoff series that Steve Kerr has coached in with this Warriors team. So that's really impressive when you look at that. Um, and we're going to go through all of it. But just to put in perspective, the superstar, the way Steph Curry is and the team player that he is and the way he took less money at the beginning of his contract, the injuries he had, just the fact that he's had this incredible career is he's an underdog story, even though now people look at him as one of the faces of the league for the last bunch of years, he continues to be an underdog story. And even in a game like last night where he didn't have his best game, he makes everyone around him better. The way he's constantly running around, he passes the ball, he relocates, he sets back cuts for everyone else. He makes everyone better. He's the most selfless superstar I think we've ever seen in basketball. Um, And that's what makes him such an incredible player, makes him such an incredible teammate. 
And it's why this team continues, no matter who the surrounding pieces are, this team continues to thrive and get better. And obviously it helps when you have guys like Clay Thompson and Draymond Green who've done it together for so long. And I think a big part of this, a big story here is obviously Clay, um, because he has the huge game and obviously everything he's been through with the torn ACL and the torn Achilles, um, obviously just an incredible story for Clay Thompson to be all the way back where he wasn't back in the finals. So it's a huge accomplishment. Um, and if you think about it, like, People talk about, well, you know, they, they were just another dynasty. It's six out of eight years. It's not like comparing it to the Spurs. I did compare it to the Spurs last time because the Spurs had that lull in the middle where they had to retool, build around it. But the Warriors really did. There was a lot. It, it wasn't just two years off. So that's one. And two, even if you are comparing it to a regular dynasty, if you're comparing it to a team, it's not easy to just put together a dynasty, even if you gather around great players. And the example, look at the LA Lakers. They win the one bubble title after getting LeBron and AD and all that. They win the one bubble title and now they're in shambles. Look at the Clippers. The Clippers, they go out, they get the guy who just came off a championship. Kawhi Leonard was probably the best player in the league. They pair him up with Paul George. They still haven't done anything. And then more, you look at Miami, even them, they win two championships. I'm talking about the LeBron heat. That whole dynasty, quote unquote, lasted only four years. I know LeBron left, but still, it just shows you how hard it is to maintain it, how hard it is to keep everyone happy. It's not like the Warriors didn't have anyone leave. They had arguably the best player in the world leave, right, in KD, and they still maintained their competitiveness and how great they were. Look at Brooklyn. Speaking of KD, Brooklyn gets KD. They get Kyrie. It's like, oh, this is the next dynasty. These guys, they don't even make it to a championship, right? They lose to Milwaukee last year. That wasn't even in the conference finals. Obviously, the first year, both guys are hurt, and now they're in shambles also. So the idea that this is not something special, that this is not, oh, well, it's just a dynasty. Oh, they're going to win again. Again, classic Warriors. No, it's really impressive. And people, I said, are starting to appreciate it. But I think we saw a little pushback last night after they won of people just saying, oh, well, yeah, obviously they have these great players. They just keep winning. This is so boring. I don't think this is boring. I think this is really impressive. And I do want to go through the timeline because, like I said, I think the timeline is something that is really important to look at here because when you realize how much has gone into this and how much the front office gets credit for this and how much the rebuilding of the team around Steph Clay and Draymond and how they put them together and how they allowed them to build their own type of style of play and everything that they did that went into this dynasty becoming a dynasty over the last years and really what they did to turn it back into a dynasty when it looked like it was over starting in 2019 is extremely impressive and yes there are certain parts I don't agree with I I thought in 2020 when Steph got hurt and you saw Steve Kerr just seemed uninterested in games on the sideline yeah there's certain things that i don't agree with with steph with steve kerr but obviously the success has been there we know mark jackson started to implement the system of them doing what they do and just shooting a ton of threes but steve kerr obviously took it to the next level you do have to give credit where credit is due um but at the same time with steve kerr them being bad they ultimately get wiseman obviously wiseman not a part of the team this year but it started in 2009 it started with the draft and they draft steph curry one pick ahead of my knicks and i always say it's not about drafting him because anyone could draft him it's about letting him become the player he became um and really teaching him to become that player, allowing him to be that superstar through all the injuries and everything. So 2009, 2010, that's Steph Curry's rookie season. They go 26 and 56, of course. This is still Monte Ellis' team, um, and they miss the playoffs. 2010, they get David Lee. Um, and in 2010, 2011, again, not great. They missed the playoffs again, 36 and 46. And 2011 is where it starts to change. It starts to turn into kind of the dynasty. And that's already 11 years ago. 
And that's when they hire Mark Jackson. They hire Mark Jackson. They draft Clay Thompson. All of a sudden, now it's Clay and Steph. You have that backcourt. Mark Jackson is there. You're starting to implement it. But before anything could happen, Steph deals with the ankle injuries, the ankle issues that we know have plagued him throughout his career now. Um, and he misses the entire season. Then they trade Monte away in the 2012. They decide, okay, we want to go with the backcourt of Clay and Steph. We're turning this into Steph's team. Monte Ellis was a big part of that franchise. He was the face of that franchise. And now they kind of pivoted from that. And people are like, hmm, you're pivoting from Monte Ellis, who was considered a really great player in the league at that point. And they trade him away. And now it's Clay and Steph, and it's a young team. And it's like, okay, we're building around these guys. This is what's happening now. And in the first year, 2011, 2012, it's a bust. They go 23 and 43 with Mark Jackson. Um, obviously, Steph was hurt that year. Just a terrible team. They take a major step back. That was the lockout year. So it was less games, only 66 games. In 2012, it takes another turn. And if people don't know who this is, you should really learn who this is because. If you're talking about the history of the Warriors and what this franchise has done, I think a major part of that is Bob Myers. I heard an interview of his, I think it was on with Bill Simmons, but I don't remember for sure. This guy is the architect of this team. This guy is the guy who rebuilt this team, built the team the first time, obviously. And he became the guy who changed what this team is and what it is today, the team that you know it. Uh, in 2012, they hire Bob Myers as the GM. And in the 2012 draft, they get... Azili, Barnes, and Draymond Green all in one draft. And then if you think about it, that's basically their starting five. Clay and Steph, and then they have Barnes, Azili, and Draymond was their starting five for that great team. And 2012-13, it pays off right away. That's when Steph arrives. Obviously, he has that game in Madison Square Garden, that 50-something point game where they lost to the Knicks, that great Knicks team. That was a 2012-13 Knicks that won 50-something games. The Warriors, in that season, they end up going 47-35, and they're the sixth seed. They upset the three seed Denver. We all remember that. And then they lose to the Spurs in six. And that's when Steph Curry famously says, hey, we're going to be back. We just got a taste of this. We now know what this is like. We're going to be back. And he was right. They were back. They come back in 2013. They get Andre Iguodala. They trade for him. He was on Denver at the time. And they trade for him. He's like, I saw what playoffs was like in this building. I want to be part of this culture. He was all excited. They get him in 2013. And then in 2013-14, they go 51-31, and 31, so they improve their record by four games. But again, they're only six in the West, and they lose to Chris Paul and the Clippers in seven games in the first round. And it's disappointment. Obviously, the team overachieved from the year before, but wasn't where they thought they could get. And that's when they make the decision to fire Mark Jackson. And Mark Jackson took the team from a 20-win team with a vision to a 51-win team with playoff experience, including upsetting the three-seed Denver Nuggets taking the Clippers to a seven-game series. All that was under Mark Jackson, and yet the team decides to move on and go to a guy who had never been a head coach in the league, was a TV guy in Steve Kerr, and people questioned the decision. A lot of people said, that's not going to work. How's that going to work? And then it does work. Obviously, we know what happens the following season. 2014-15 season, they go 67-15. and They're first in the West. Steph wins his first MVP. And they win the finals in six. They beat the Cavs. Just an incredible, incredible turnaround. They go from a team that, yes, they're on the cusp. They're kind of good. They're getting there. They become 14 wins better in Kerr's first season. And they win the finals. And it felt like all of a sudden the dynasty was born all at once. And you don't remember, because this is now 2015. You don't remember all the years before that. It started in 2009 and everything they did throughout that process, whether it was Bob Myers, whether it was Mark Jackson, that draft where they get Draymond, where they get Harrison Barnes, that whole draft, drafting Steph, drafting Clay, and putting that team together and putting in a system finally pays off. 
and now the dynasty is born. So while it was kind of under wraps and it was being, you know, birthed underground, it's not like a plant that's popped out of the ground and everyone sees it all of a sudden. Oh, wow, this dynasty is here and the whole NBA world catches on. So the next year, it's all about the dynasty. They trade away David Lee, though, uh, who was a big face of the franchise. Also, they decide to move on from him. And in the 2015 and 16 season, they start the season 24 and 0. And we all know how this goes. They end up going 73 and 9. Steph wins the unanimous MVP. One of the greatest seasons anyone's seen is Steph Curry in 2015 and 16. They go down to OKC 3-1 against KD and Westbrook, but they come back and beat OKC to go to the finals. And then in the finals, they're up 3-1. Draymond gets suspended for a game, and LeBron and the Cavs have one of the greatest comebacks. Kyrie Irving hits the three. LeBron gets the block in game seven, and the Warriors lose. And the Warriors losing in that game was the first time that changed the dynasty for real because the dynasty had arrived when they win 65 games the season prior to that and they go to the championship and win it that's one thing but then winning 73 games and losing to the Cavs after being up 3-1 that's going to shake the dynasty and it did because obviously they get KD and everything that comes with that with all the criticism that came with that the is this not Steph's team anymore? Everything that surrounded getting KD in that offseason changes the dynasty, but it also keeps the dynasty going because for the next two seasons they go 67 and 15, and they were 16 and 1 in the playoffs en route to winning the championship in the 2016-17 season. KD wins the finals MVP. It's still Steph's team and always felt like Steph's team, but KD just made this team a different level and totally unstoppable. In 2017, in the offseason, Steph signs a five-year Supermax extension, finally gets the big contract he's deserved, even though he was prior to that, he was one of the least played players on that roster. He finally gets the big contract um, that keeps him. So it was in 2017 that keeps him through this season, obviously. So that is a huge moment for the Warriors um, extending. They're saying, okay, Steph, this is still your team. You're still the guy. They're extending him to extend what will be ultimately their dynasty. In 27 and 18, they go 58 and 24, and they come back from down 3-2 to Houston. We all remember that series. Houston and Chris Paul. Chris Paul gets hurt with James Harden. They were up. It looked like they had a stranglehold on the sit on that series. And if you remember that year, Houston was better than Golden State. They beat them a couple times in the regular season. Houston had 65 wins. They were one of the best teams we had seen in recent memory. James Harden was on a different level MVP that season. That was probably the best James Harden season that we had ever seen. And yet they come back and they beat them in the 2018 conference finals to go to the finals. And then they sweep the Cavs. It's the third championship in four years. Back-to-back championship. KD wins MVP again. And now the Warriors are talking about a 3 P. They're talking about four and five years. They're talking about this is not going to stop. This is going to keep going. And that's what it felt like. They get Boogie Cousins in that offseason, 2018 offseasons, which I feel like people don't even remember at this point that they got Boogie Cousins. Um, but they get Boogie and they add him to already a team with Clay and Steph and Draymond and KD. And it just felt like this team was going to be unstoppable. They were. They were first in the West again, 57 and 25. And then in the second round, KD has the calf strain. And now we're starting to think this is where it ends because this team is still great, but you have one injury and all of a sudden it's a different story, right? All of a sudden it's not the same. So KD strains the calf, but then he comes back. He comes back in the playoffs 
in game five against the Raptors. They're down 3-1 and KD all of a sudden is back and maybe they rushed him back. Maybe they already knew that he wasn't sticking around and they didn't care. They're like, hey, let's just try and win this right now. And of course, he tears his Achilles in that game, probably because he was still hurt and the Warriors still managed to hold on to, to force a game six, but it just felt different at that point when he tears the Achilles. It felt like the dynasty was changing again for the second time. And then Clay Thompson tears his ACL. And all of a sudden, it feels like in one moment, the dynasty was over. They lose to the Raptors, one of the great playoff series from Kawhi Leonard. And now it feels like it's over. 2019, that offseason, they traded Godala. And now if you look around, it's Draymond with question marks. His role had been minimized due to KD arriving. It's Steph Curry, who we know his, his injury history. And now there's no Clay. There's no KD. And then Sean Livingston retires. And then KD comes out and says, yeah, there was stuff going on in the locker room. It wasn't a good situation anymore. He starts talking about how bad it was and how bad it was getting towards the end in Golden State, which I think really had nothing to do with the team and had more to do with the fact that KD never felt like it was his team. He wanted it to be his team. It was still Steph's team. And he was upset by that. And he goes and signs with Brooklyn. And obviously brings Kyrie with him and decides, I'm going to recover there and become the superstar there. That offseason, though, the one thing the Warriors did do, and this is Bob Myers at his best, because Klay Thompson just gets hurt. Draymond Green's role had been significantly limited over those two years. They lose KD, they lose Sean Livingston, they trade away a Godala. All those things happen in one offseason. And he says, you know what? I'm not giving up on this. I'm not giving up on these guys. He extends Klay Thompson and extends Draymond Green. This is really... The birth, if you ask me, of the f- next dynasty, of where they got to today, and making sure the dynasty does not die in that moment was when they re signed and extended Clay and Draymond in the 2019 offseason. 2019 20, in October, early in the season, Steph Curry ends his season with a hand injury. They trade for Wiggins, they trade away D'Lo, who was really good. D'Angelo Russell was really good on that team, and they trade him away. They go 15 and 50, and that's a season that I talked about, and it seems like He's just disinterested Steve Kerr on the sideline. But it's like, you know what? We'll get back next year. We'll have our full healthy team. That's what they thought at least. But then in 2020, Thompson, as he's getting ready for the season, is out again. He tears his Achilles. So now he has a torn ACL and a torn Achilles in back-to-back seasons. And now he's missing two full seasons consecutively. In 2020-21, they go 39-33, and end as the eighth seed. And then obviously that's the first year of the play-in last year. And they lose in the play-in. They don't even make the playoffs. Steph Curry was an MVP candidate. It was like, oh my God, look what Steph could do alone. Forget about what he's doing with everyone else. But now we kind of started to appreciate this guy could do it alone. He carried this team to an eighth seed and almost brought them into the playoffs. And it kind of gave us an idea of what could happen this season. And then 2022 happens. They have the hot start. They're 18 and two. Steph Curry sets the record in Madison Square Garden for the most threes of all time. It feels destined. Steph feels like he's fully back. Draymond feels like he's fully engaged. And then Klay Thompson returns in January. And yes, Klay Thompson doesn't look like himself. Then Steph gets injured. Draymond gets injured. All of a sudden, it's like, I don't know. This team, we thought they're back. Everything we thought about this team, the rise of JP, the rise of Wiggins, all those guys, it really felt like this team was back. But then it's like, who knows if we're able to see Clay Thompson as the same t- same guy again. He wasn't the same guy. Draymond gets hurt again. Steph gets hurt again. Maybe the entries are catching up to them. Maybe this is just too much. Phoenix is better. This team's better. That team's better. They get in the playoffs and they start to dominate. And then I think the culmination 
of in game five, Clay Thompson looking for the first time in three years like himself and looking like the old Clay Thompson. I think that kind of is the culmination of everything. And they go to the finals. And so if you go through that 11 to 13 year process from the moment they drafted Steph Curry till now, and you don't think that's a dynasty and the way they were able to maneuver and can keep the dynasty going at every turn and every point of adversity and how impressive it is and how amazing it is that this team is back and how happy I am for Clay Thompson. Specifically, if you watch the video of him and Ernie Johnson talking and Ernie Johnson was getting emotional saying, Every NBA fan is happy for you. And he spoke for every NBA fan because that is how every NBA fan feels and how much they love Clay Thompson. But that whole team, I think, has kind of gotten the love of the NBA fan and they deserve it. They're back in the finals now um, for six time in eight years and they have a chance to win it. We'll see who they play, but whoever they play, they do have a chance to win it. Luke obviously loses. And after the game, because uh, I talked about this on last episode, how... What's going to happen with Luka now? Is he going to improve himself? Is he going to try and get better? He talked about improving his defense. He said, I want to improve my defense. He talked about his relationship with Jason Kidd. And I think we all thought, oh, Rick Carlisle is out. Maybe Luka's a diva. We had those conversations. I had that conversation with my father last year, I think, on the podcast. But Jason Kidd, the relationship that he has with Luka is incredible. Kidd talked about, he kind of said, alluded to Luka getting in better shape. He said, you know, I think Luca now understands how long and grueling an NBA season is if you want to win a championship and how your conditioning has to be better. So I think the relationship that they had, Luca's like, hey, I'm not having a long off season. I'm going to get with Jason Kidd. I think the vision he has for the franchise, I think we're looking together. We're working together to make this a great situation. Luca said all the right things. He's going to have to act on it in the off season, but I'm really impressed with what he said after the game. So I hope he can become the guy that he's capable of being. But congratulations to the Warriors. Congratulations to the Mavs on a great season also. And that they are set in the NBA Finals. Now, one thing I do want to say about the NBA playoffs that we've seen as we shift a little bit to the Eastern Conference is there's a serious uh, blowout problem in the NBA. It's been difficult to enjoy the playoffs because every single game hasn't been a close game. Even if series are going to seven games, the games themselves have not been close. And I'm not sure, maybe it's the three-pointer that's causing this because one team's hot from three and the other team's not, and that's the game. Maybe that's what's happening. I'm not sure what's causing this issue, but we've seen it now. And Draymond Green predicted they'd play the Celtics. So if the Celtics, I do think they'll win tonight, probably a blowout, spoiler alert, um, and go to the NBA Finals. I think that series would have a lot of close games because I think those two teams are very closely matched. But there is a problem with the NBA right now. I also think there's a problem with pace of play. Um, I talked about this. <laughs> I tweeted this out. Hot take. The NBA has a worse pace of play problem than MLB. And the reason is because in the MLB, at least, you have the pitch. Every few seconds, the pitch is coming. But in the NBA, which is supposed to be nonstop action, and you have to take fouls, and you have all the reviews at the end of games, and every time, the end of a game takes forever. And th- these playoff games have taken so long it's hard to get into it. You get zero momentum. You get zero rhythm to any of the games. And maybe that's why there's a blowout. Maybe that's why they're so one-sided because n- neither team can get in a rhythm. And if a team gets ahead early, 
the other team just can't come back or they start just chucking threes and then they can't come back that way. So I think it's a really interesting situation that we've seen with the NBA right now. And when you contrast it to the NHL playoffs and the Battle of Alberta that I watched last night, Calgary and Edmonton, that series is insane. And I think the NBA is not losing ratings because they promote their superstars and they have the best promotions in the in the world, the way they promote their league and the way their PR team is insane. If the NHL had the NBA's PR team, They'd be doing much better in the ratings than the NBA because the product itself is a thousand times better. When you watch that game, you go watch two games in a row. Every time the Rangers and Calgary and Edmonton have been on the same night and you see the tough, hard-fought battles, low-scoring, great goaltending in the Rangers and Hurricane series, and then you go turn on the next game and you see Calgary and Edmonton and Calgary just throwing a thousand shots on net against Mike Smith and you see them giving up some weak goals. And it was really... Calgary should have won that game. And obviously because that wasn't a kicking motion into the net, that should have been a good goal. But they should have won that game because they were the better team the entire game. And then Connor McDavid was just insane. Connor McDavid was one player who single-handedly, which is hard to do in hockey, it's hard to do in a lot of sports, to have one player who single-handedly beat the other team the way Connor McDavid did is so incredibly impressive. He now in 12 games this postseason has 26 points, which is just absurd. Seven goals and 19 assists uh, in 12 games, which is nuts. And I kind of compare it to Steph Curry, because if you watch the game winner that uh, Connor McDavid had last night, so he's not just a superstar who plays and shoots and could obviously puck handle and all that stuff. Watch how he runs to the board and pressures the Calgary player who's handling the puck behind his own net to force the turnover eventually. Dreisaitl then plays strong on the boards to finish the turnover. And then all of a sudden you see that Connor relocated to the slot so that he could get the pass from Dreisaitl and have an open shot to the net. Him driving to the bottom, that's like Steph Curry dribbling at the top of the key and then passing the ball off before relocating to the corner, getting the ball back on a swing and hitting a three. That's literally what it was, how he gets to the boards, pressures, forces the turnover, then finds the slot, gets the pass and scores. Insane. Really incredible stuff. And that series has been really fun. But of course, my eyes have been locked in on the Rangers. It's been a weird series. And if you look at what Carolina's done so far in the playoffs, they've had a weird situation. What's been going on with them? They've been really good at home and really bad on the road. And I don't know what causes that. I don't know why they can't play their same style of game on the road. And if you look at it in three games on the road, the Rangers have scored two goals, and Carolina, in three games at home, has scored seven goals. So the Rangers are getting outscored 7-2. The Rangers are getting outshot 82-66 to in three games on the road. And then if you look at the two games at Madison Square Garden, the Rangers are also getting outshot, by the way, at the Garden, 75-61. I know it's only two games, so they're getting a more total number of shots, almost 33% more shots per game at home than they are on the road. But the Rangers, in two games at home, are outscoring them 7-2 also. So it's kind of just a weird situation, even though Carolina's also getting a lot more shots at Madison Square Garden than they are in their own building. That's just not their game. Their game isn't to take a million shots, to be offensive minded. And it's so interesting to see a team that gets away from their game so much. Could it be just the matchups and the coaches switching up the matchups? Is that the only thing that's changing this series? Because we know that when you're at home, you get to pick the matchup who's on the ice. But is that the only thing that's changed the series? It can't be that that's what's caused such a big difference between the road and the home games in this series. And really in the previous series for Carolina also. Um, the Rangers had tons of momentum after game four. They totally dominated. That was probably the best game they've played in the entire playoffs was game four at home against Carolina. And then game five, they looked like a completely different team. 
And if you look at what Carolina did, Carolina was totally lost in game four. And they come home for game five and they play their best game of the series. Really the game that looked the most like themselves. That looked like the game they like to play. Kind of like they played in the third period of game one. That's the only other time we saw this Carolina team. And if we see this Carolina team again, I'm scared. Even if it's at Madison Square Garden, Carolina's bound to win a road game, right? So game six, Saturday night at Madison Square Garden, Carolina's bound to win one on the road. The Rangers are bound to lose a home game also. The Rangers are 5-0-1 with the overtime loss, obviously triple overtime. That's the only game they lost in the playoffs at Madison Square Garden. They've won five straight since. So they're bound to lose a home game too. So I'm nervous about this because this is the first time that for 60 minutes I really saw Carolina play how they're capable of playing and the Rangers couldn't handle it at all. And they were totally outplayed and overmatched by this Carolina team. The positive spin for me, it's one home game. Carolina, as good as they look, they haven't been that team on the road. It's one home game. The Rangers have been the comeback kids all year long. I kind of hated the phrase, no quit in New York. I thought it was kind of nerdy, stupid, whatever. But the Rangers have embodied that phrase this postseason. Every time they've been down, they've gotten back up off the map. Being down 2-0 in this series, being down 3-1 in the previous series, being down two goals in game four, being down two goals in game five, all that. We know the whole story. We know the history. Being down a goal with five minutes left in game seven against Pittsburgh. The Rangers, no matter what, they keep coming back. The top guys have looked really good at home. Andrew Kopp has looked really good at home. Kreider, who's been really on and off in this series, had a terrible game too. I think had another bad game in game five last night. I don't think he'll be that bad again. I think he'll be better in game six. Mika has been good really since they were down 3-1 against Pittsburgh. Mika has been himself. I thought the Panarin line actually looked pretty good. All we need to do is win game one game, and we have Igor, and they don't. You win one game, we have Igor, you don't. Game seven, anything can happen. And then it flips, right? Carolina's bound to lose a home game. The Rangers are bound to win a road game. All of a sudden, it flips. And another thing, because I talked about this previously, we started to see Antiranta revert into the backup goalie that he is. And I know Antiranta is a great story. I appreciate that. But if he starts to revert back into the kind of mediocre goalie that he is, and he's been throughout his career, very solid backup, but not a real starting playoff goalie. And it, we started to see that. The Strom no goal, which was a good call, by the way. Right away when I saw the goal, I texted my cousin, that was offside. Like, I didn't even celebrate the goal. I knew that was offside. But that was a really soft goal to give up to Ranta. Now, if you don't get shots on him, he's not going to give up a lot of goals. So the Rangers only got 17 shots on him, and that's why he didn't give up any goals. But if he plays bad in Game 6, and then they throw Freddie Anderson back in there in Game 7, it's the same thing that happened in the Pittsburgh series. Yeah, Freddie will be at home, so it's a friendly environment for him. But still, throwing him in cold in the middle of a playoff series when he hasn't played in a couple weeks, I'll take my chances if I'm the Rangers. So no matter what, I love this team. I hate those fans who are like, oh my god. This team sucks. I knew it. They just get your hopes up just to tear you down. This team has been fun all year. This team has been resilient all year. We said this series was gravy, and I'm not making an excuse for them. I still want to win this series. I still, once I saw how capable the Rangers were of winning this series, because the first two periods of game one, I was like, oh my God, we're actually in this. I thought every game in the series was going to look the way game five looked. That the Rangers were going to be completely overmatched, and there was no way. The only way they win a game is if Igor absolutely stands on their head, on his head, and the Rangers win one nothing or two nothing. That's how I thought this series was going to go for the Rangers. And yet, from game one, they were like, "Oh no, we are in this series. We can play with this Carolina team." And that's what kind of got me back into the series and got me hopeful that they would win the series. 
Now, in Game 5, it looks like they've reverted back to what we've seen all year, which is Carolina has been the better team than the Rangers all year. They've been a bad matchup for the Rangers all year. That said, I'm not going to hate this team. I don't... It's... Like I said, they come back from down 3-1 against Pittsburgh. It would have been a terrible disappointment if they lose to the first round in Pittsburgh against Pittsburgh. But they come back. They win that series. This is just gravy. I think they could still win. I'm still hopeful. I'm not confident that they can win. But some fans out there who are just, oh, my God, this team is the worst, blah, blah, blah. You're not real Rangers fans. I'm sorry. You hate the Rangers. You don't actually like the team. I love this team no matter what. Um, I really want them to win. I'm hopeful. They're down, but they're not out. And... There's some keys to game six. They need to get the kid line back together. Put the lines back together. Put Kopp and Strom on the line with Panarin. That line actually looked really good. Put Capo back with Hedl and Lafreniere. Vitrano started to play a lot better. Put him back up with Kreider and Mika. Run those lines. Roll those lines. Be aggressive on the boards. And on pucks, everything. The Rangers were so passive in game five. They were almost like afraid to see what happened. Take more chances. Be more aggressive. Gallant talked about it. They were just trying to stick check. They weren't body checking because it felt like they were so passive in that game. Play together. Big guys need to come up big and win faceoffs. I mean, oh my God. It is such a pain to watch every single time Carolina ices the puck. It's like, well, it doesn't matter because it's just going to get it on the faceoff. Anyway, they could ice it like two, three times in a row. And it's just like, well, it doesn't matter. They're just going to get the puck back and try and clear the zone. You got to start winning faceoffs. You got to be better on faceoffs. Mika has been good on faceoffs. Cop has been better on faceoffs than Ryan Strom. So maybe he continues to take the faceoffs if he's on that line. I'm positive though. Let's go. Win game six. It's one game at home and then force game seven. And hopefully you never know what happens in a game seven on the road. We have Igor. You don't. Let's do this. The last thing is the New York Yankees because I mentioned this. They were going to get their real test. I mentioned this on the podcast how they lost three in a row against Chicago and against the Orioles. And it felt like this was going to be the first time that this team was actually going to get tested this year. A team that previously had just been incredible and rolling against everyone. They had no injuries. They had no problems. All that. Now they're starting to have injuries. The bullpen doesn't look the same. Josh Donaldson goes down. Giancarlo Stanton goes down. Who knows what's happening with DJ LeMahieu, but it didn't matter. This team has that 2019 vibe with a combination of the 2017 vibe. That 2017 of, we don't care what you think of us, maybe we don't belong here, we can steamroll you. And the 2019 of next man up mentality, the resilience that they have. They could be, they beat the Rays. This was, everyone's talking about, hey, this is their first real test. Well, they haven't played anyone yet. They just destroyed the Rays. Nestor Cortez is for real. No one can hit him. It's unbelievable how good this guy actually is. He's one of the best pitchers in baseball right now. And who knows if he can keep it up, but they get Matt Carpenter, doesn't matter. They get Miguel Andujar, doesn't matter. It's amazing. This team, no matter who they throw out there, is resilient and hardworking. And by the way, speaking of Miguel Andujar, he needs to stay. Bye, Aaron Hicks. I'm sorry. Donaldson's hurt now also, so maybe that'll give him more opportunity to play third base also. But a perfect outfield would be Judge, Stanton, or Judge, Gallo, and Andujar. Andujar, he's proven in the major leagues. He's a guy who can hit a doubles hitter, a line drive hitter, a contact hitter. He's perfect for the middle of that lineup. Put him four or five. He's a guy who always makes contact. He'll be up with runners on base. Even if you throw Gallo out there, and I talked about this on last episode, and he strikes out a bunch, he could still get some pop, run into a couple home runs. That's fine. But if you have a guy like Miguel Andujar to balance him out in that lineup. That's incredible. I don't need Aaron Hicks because he walks. Miguel Andujar, he, he showed you what you can do when you put a ball in play, right? There's that infield single. He hustled on that play. He's played solid in left field, which is not his natural position. He's got to stay. And if we're talking about other adjustments, 
I don't want to say I told you so because I'm not happy that I'm right because I love Kyle Higashioka. I really do like him as a catcher. But I did say he was going to hit more home runs in the spring training than he was going to hit in the regular season. And so far, he's not hit a home run. So when he hit seven or eight of them in spring training and everyone was going nuts, I said, yep, he's going to have more in spring training than I'll have in the entire regular season. And so far, it looks like I'm going to be right unless he gets hot quickly. And Jose Trevino has proved that he is capable of being the everyday catcher. He's better defensively, arguably. He handles the staff better. And his clutch gene is insane. I mean, that guy with the walk-offs and the emotional story and all that. And obviously, he has shown that he has a little bit of pop in his bat. I really like Jose Trevino as the everyday starting catcher. Maybe you split it like he's the starting catcher 60% of the time and Higgy 40% of the time. That's not a full starting role. I guess a starting catcher starts usually probably 70 to 75% of games. So I'm not saying he has to be there every single night. I'm just saying 60% of the time and Higgy gets 40 that should be the split. And at the end of the day, 32 and 13 is insane. Uh, again, they have a chance tonight against the Rays to become 20 games over 500. I remember I was 32 and 13 on my MLB The Show video game, and I tweeted this out, and I was like, well, I have to change the level because this is just too easy. This is unrealistic. And that's how good this Yankee team is. This Yankee team is a video game. They're that freaking good, and it's been exciting. And hopefully they can keep it going no matter who's out there. Aaron Judge continues to be the one constant for this team, the guy who's always out there. And the guy who's coming through for this team, no matter what, that's going to win him an MVP maybe. And it's definitely going to make him a lot of money, whether it's here or not. I don't know. It's going to make him a ton of money. And this Yankee team, if they can continue to be resilient, continue to fight and get healthy at the right time, this team can go really far. And it's going to be a really fun, long summer as we kick off the summer. Memorial Day weekend this week. Um, going to be fun times. So I'm actually working Memorial Day uh, I'm going to be doing the traffic reports. If you've been following me on social media, I've been doing some of the traffic reports on the radio. So I'm going to be working Monday morning. So you could hear me then 105.7 The Fan or 106.5 or 101.9 in Baltimore or anywhere you are on the Odyssey app, which I'm sure you're listening to this podcast on the Odyssey app right now because that's where you listen to this podcast. Um, and not Spotify or Apple or any of those things. So it should be a great weekend for everyone. And like I said, let's go Rangers. That's what's on my mind Saturday night Rangers and then if we have to pivot to the Yankees we'll see but um the Yankees have been fun so that's been good all that everything else NBA finals looking forward to that it should be Celtics and Warriors but we'll see maybe the Heat have a fight in them there I've talked about them that's you want to talk about resilient teams that's a team that definitely has a fight in them so till next time I'll see you all later you were the best nights of my life you got the light that always shines I miss the way that you move and the way I get high When you take me to your eyes Like I'm standing in the sky I see your subway cars and your old graffiti I breathe your air when I land in another city I'll be that one that's got you printed on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go Change it up, oh, oh, oh. always on my Drive down Riverside 
see the birds flying on the high line With the sidewalks burning, we pray for rain in July I want the Yankees 99 yeah. And the Knicks yeah. on a sold out night When the curtains close and the Broadway streets are alive hey. I need your heartbeat close, don't you ever leave me And I breathe your air when I land in another city And I'll be that's got you printed on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go oh, oh, I ain't changed it oh, oh, oh. Always on my road I'm still New York You're the only oh, 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 That I'll ever know oh, oh. My concrete walls I'm still New York Yeah, BK born and raised I was Godsent Hit them courts, y'all didn't prospect Take them long walks on my time spin Just a kid with that empire, stay the mindset Kick flipping off a blind deck Dipping from the New York City's finest, yeah Said I've been up on my New York shit Walking down the block with my New York bitch I can never leave my city, ain't nothing like it Even if I do, though, I can never hide it Top down on the west side when I'm driving East side be the only side that I'm riding I'm still here.